Well, tonight I will be beginning a new series in the book of Jonah. If you would please turn there to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah being one of the books of the minor prophets, one of the shorter books located near the end of the Old Testament. We will be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. We're going to leave verse 17 until next time. But for tonight, we will look at these first 16 verses of the book of Jonah. This is the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts to receive it. We pray that we would learn from Jonah, from his mistakes and his folly, but also that even in him that we would see a picture of your son, Jesus Christ, and the great deliverance that we have in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
what is the last place on earth you would want to go? What is a place that seems strange, obnoxious, foreign, such that if you had to go there, you would not be excited about it at all? Maybe there's a place where you have bad memories or people that you would rather not see again from your past. Maybe there's a place that isn't particularly safe because of news, what you see on the news and what you hear about crime and such, you think that's not a good place to be. It's popular in our day to pile on, for instance, a place like California. I lived there for three years to attend seminary, and I made a lot of friends there, although ironically, many of them were trying to leave. But it is a different kind of place. Or really, you even look at most larger cities now, you'll see liberalizing politics and strange behavior openly on display. Or maybe there's a place you don't want to go because of the weather. You don't want to go somewhere that's too hot or too cold or too dry or too rainy. I had a friend in seminary who was from the Philippines, and it's very hot and humid in the Philippines all the time. The temperature and the humidity there were usually above 90, both of them most of the time. So when he came to Southern California, where the 70s and 80s were the normal temperatures, he would be freezing. We'd be out there in our t-shirts and shorts year-round, and he'd come outside with his winter coat and his blanket. And we'd, tell, we'd talk, Heidi and I would talk about Wyoming, where we were from, and the weather there, and he would say, I can't go there because I would die. <laughs> well, today, we begin to look at the true story of a man, the prophet of God, who receives a command from God to go to the last place on earth that he wants to go. We'll get into some of the reasons why in a moment. Now we look at Jonah, and it can be easy to see someone back there in biblical history who was not a good example of anything. And yet what I am confronted with in looking at this text is that Jonah is probably not all that different from us. In certain ways... I can relate to what he's going through. It's not a good thing, but it's understandable thinking in human categories. There are places we don't want to go. There are people that we don't want to deal with, us, with that we don't want to deal with, because often we think of things in worldly terms and not in godly terms. But for Jonah and for us, God confronts our worldly mindedness with kingdom mindedness. And that is the overarching story of Jonah. I'm planning on looking at this book in four parts, one message for each chapter, roughly. So tonight we look at Jonah's flight. We see him receive this command from God to go to that last place on earth he wants to go and the sinful response that it produces and the dire consequences that that has. We'll look at this text in three points. First, Jonah's disobedience. This is in verses 1 through 3. Second, Jonah's discovery in verses 4 through 9. And then third and finally, Jonah's doom in verses 10 through 16. So again, Jonah's disobedience, his discovery, and his doom. 
So first we will look at Jonah's disobedience in verses 1 through 3. So in verse 1, we are introduced to Jonah. He is a prophet. He receives the word of the Lord. He is the son of Amittai, and he is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. We know this because he actually appears elsewhere in scripture outside of this book that bears his name, and understanding Jonah's day job might help us to better understand this book. So let's look at that real quick. We're going to take a quick detour to 2 Kings chapter 14. We will look there at verses 23 through 27. It says there, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So we learn here several important pieces of information. Jonah prophesied in the northern kingdom under King Jeroboam II. Now, if you know the history of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, you know that all of Israel's kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. They never once had a good king who led them in love and service of the Lord. Judah at least had some good kings, but Israel was idolatrous from the start. Her people, apart from a small remnant, served foreign gods like Baal and the Ashtaroth, and for this they often faced warfare and decline. They rejected God, and so God gave them over to their enemies for chastening and rebuke. Yet in Jonah's time, something of a reversal occurred. Although we don't see any particular renewal of piety or belief in Israel, we do see a time of brief material recovery and prosperity. Although they have done wickedly, God by his grace restores to them some of their land from their enemies. Though they are faithless, he remains faithful, giving them time and place to live and opportunity to repent and return to him. God continues to send Israel prophets, and in this case, he sends Jonah. Though they are wicked and rebellious, God, through Jonah, told them that they would reclaim their territory for a time, and they do. Why does all of this matter for looking at the book of Jonah? Well, this reclamation of territory implies that Israel had enemies who had taken it away. And for the northern kingdom of Israel, there were three primary enemies. There was Judah, the southern kingdom. The part ruled under the kings descended from the line of David. There was Syria to the north, and then Assyria to the northeast. Now, Assyria was growing into a formidable empire. In fact, at the peak of its power, 
It would eventually conquer and wipe out Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, would almost wipe out Judah, and their territory would stretch from the Persian Gulf in the east to Turkey in the west to Egypt in the south. Now, what was the capital of the Assyrian Empire? The city of Nineveh. So you can start to see why Jonah would be reluctant to go there. He's already got a tough job. Being the prophet to the rebellious and apostate wing of Israel. And now not only does God want him to do that, he wants him to go and prophesy among and against the enemies that threaten Israel. And it seems that for Jonah, this command is something of a last straw. He's done with this prophet business because once he gets this command, he does the exact opposite of what he was told. Nineveh is to the east, through the desert. Jonah instead decides to flee to Tarshish, which is to the west by sea. In fact, Tarshish was probably located on the Mediterranean coast in what is now Spain. This was about as far to the west at that time that one could go. It was essentially the edge of the known world. Now, not only does this text portray this distance to Tarshish as a long geographical distance, it is also presented in vertical distance. He is to go up to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa, he goes down into the ship, he's going the wrong way in more ways than one. Now, this is not merely Jonah attempting to put some great geographical distance between himself and Nineveh. He is seeking to put spiritual distance between himself and the God who would send him to such a place. For we see in verse 3 that Jonah not only boards this ship to get to Tarshish, but to get from the presence of the Lord. He knows very well that this is an act of great disobedience. God has commissioned him for a work, and he is fleeing from it. It seems that he has somehow come to the conclusion that he can actually escape God's presence, knowledge, and power. But for this, he is going to learn a hard lesson. This brings us to our second point. After Jonah's disobedience, we come to Jonah's discovery in verses 4 through 9. There's actually two discoveries here. First, what Jonah discovers, and then what is discovered about Jonah by the ship's crew. To the first, Jonah learns the hard way that despite his best efforts, he cannot escape from the presence of the Lord and the power of the Lord. Look at verse 4. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Have you ever been on a boat in a storm? This is a small thing by comparison, but when I was a child, my dad and I, we would go fishing on lakes around Wyoming. My dad had a bass boat, not a huge boat. And sometimes we would be out on the lake and rather quickly a storm would blow up. There would be white caps and waves of maybe a couple feet if it was a really bad one. By comparison to this story, not much. We probably weren't in any real danger, but I was just a little kid, so for me, it was scary. It was The boat was rocking all over, it was thunder and lightning, it was not an enjoyable time. 
When you're on a boat and it's you against the raging waters, you start to feel very small, very helpless, very alone. This storm is a large and serious and dangerous storm, probably something akin to a hurricane, at least in power and destruction. An ancient wooden ship like the one Jonah was on was at the risk of being broken up, broken into pieces. It wasn't going to hold together much longer. Now, there was this great wind that was causing this. The word in Hebrew for wind is the same word used for spirits, including to describe the Spirit of God. So there's something of an implication here, though this is certainly a physical wind, the activity of God is what is behind this wind. And the sailors seem to understand this, at least have some concept of this, that something supernatural is at work. Because these pagan sailors, we see in verse 5, they cry out to their gods. Now these were not men of Israel. We don't know exactly where they were from, but the seafaring peoples of this time, they were usually Phoenicians or Greeks. But isn't it fascinating that their first instinct, even as they were pagans who served false gods, to assume supernatural activity in the storm? Everyone is created to believe in God. Though people forget the true God, distort his truth, and worship idols, the prevalence of religion all around the world and all through history testifies to God's truth, that we are all created to know him and glorify him, even if we don't think so and do so properly. We are all created to worship, and we are all going to worship something. Perhaps if a scenario like this happened today, the pagans of our time, rather than crying out to false gods, they might be checking their weather equipment and their forecasts and consulting meteorologists and looking for some scientific and materialistic cause for such an unexpected storm. For many in our world, science has taken the place of God as the answer and solution to such a trial. But for these pagans, they tried to find refuge in their pagan gods. We also see that the sailors throw their cargo into the sea. They are clearly facing a dire threat to life, such that one of their main business functions, delivering cargo, suddenly goes by the wayside. I'm sure whoever was going to receive that cargo would be displeased, and the sailors probably stood to lose a lot of money. But the sailors realize if they don't do something, they're dead. And what is cargo and the money for it when compared to their very lives? Better to be poor than to be dead. We live in a world that often devalues life for the sake of economic goods. You could look, for instance, at current debates on abortion. The typical argument in favor of abortion is that the economic harm that would be done to the mother justifies the killing of her child. What an upside-down world. Even the pagans of Jonah's day recognized that life is more valuable than money or property. But where is Jonah while all this chaos is going on? Verse 5 tells us he is down in the bottom of the ship asleep. 
It might be that as they were offloading the cargo from the cargo hold, they move a crate or something, and behind it, oh, there's a guy down here, and he's fast asleep while we're all about to die. Now, one might ask how he could sleep in such a large and dangerous storm. But there he is. Now, Richard Phillips, commentating on this passage, he knows there is something here of an analogy for the church and Christians in our world when he writes, It begins with the rejection of God's word. And like Jonah in the Tarshish-bound ship, doctrinally wayward Christians too often have sought refuge in the findings of science, the fashions of secular academia, and the waves of trendy culture, instead of standing fast on the solid rock of the Bible. The result is trouble not merely for the church, but for the entire society. End quote. Many Christians and much of the church in our day sleep soundly while ignoring God's word. How often do we as individuals know that we ought to do what obedience to Christ requires, but we rationalize it or explain it away? We look at a story like Jonah in the Bible, and we like to look down our noses at him, but we're often not all that different. Christians want worldly goods, worldly power, money, influence. They want to look good to the right people, so they put aside the certain difficult teachings of Scripture. While the world may hate us, it needs bold, faithful, biblical witness in these times of chaos. The world needs the gospel of Christ, for it is the only way of salvation. Just as without God's intervention, these sailors are doomed in the sea. In verse 6, the captain wakes Jonah, hoping maybe he has some God besides the ones they have already tried. A God that might actually be able to do something about this storm. In this time of difficulty, these pagans recognize the inadequacy of their false gods. They know that they lack. And yet the one man on the ship who knows of the true God has been asleep and shirking his duties. In our day, we see chaos, confusion, violence, uncertainty in the world, the triumph of the perverse and the ugly, and many people struggling to find answers. Are we ready to answer with the hope that we have, or are we asleep down in the bottom of the boat? There is a God who can and will save these men if they should call upon him, but the one possible witness to that fact has been missing in action. And Jonah doesn't appear to own up to his failing right away. Once he's awake, the crew decides to cast lots to determine who is to blame for what is going on. Now Jonah probably knows that this has something to do with him. He knows what he's done. He knows he's running from God, but he won't admit it. They have to cast the lot to find out. Of course, because God is sovereign and rules over all things by his providence... And not even a single lot can fall apart from his will. The lot falls on Jonah. Though Jonah thought he could run and hide from God, his sins have found him out. And so Jonah, finally under pressure, confesses, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, 
the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He knows that his God, the one true and living God, has brought this calamity as a result of his sin. There are calamities that arrive in the life that arise in the lives of God's people that are not because of sin. We looked at some of those this morning in the life of the Apostle Paul, his suffering and his struggles in his, in his efforts to proclaim the gospel. But this is one of those cases where hardship definitely comes because of sin and rebellion. And so for Jonah, it's time to face the consequences. And this brings us to our third and final point. After Jonah's disobedience and his discovery, we now turn to Jonah's doom in verses 10 through 16. Knowing that Jonah is the cause of this calamity, in verse 10 the sailors ask Jonah why he's done this. The text says they knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah cannot run and cannot hide any longer. He is forced to confess. The sailors ask in verse 11 what they should do. The storm is getting worse. Death and destruction are imminent. If Jonah has offended God, what might be done to appease God? Jonah responds in verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Now Jonah's words here underscore a fundamental truth. Sin requires death. The reality is particularly acute in a situation like this, where sin has produced dangerous and deadly consequences, temporally speaking, but this principle is always true. Every sin from high-handed sins like murder and adultery and theft on down to the ones we might think of as lesser, like covetousness and white lies and the sinful desires we don't ever act upon, they all deserve God's wrath and our death now and eternally. In a way, though imperfectly, we see the gospel in what happens to Jonah. One man's sin has brought death and destruction. What Jonah has done for this ship and its crew, Adam did for the whole world. Transgressing God's law and plunging all of humanity into sin and death. But through the death of one man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, life and salvation come to those who would believe. Jonah knows that his death will save the crew. However, the crew is not yet so persuaded. They think there must be another way. How many people, when they hear the gospel, think that there must be another way? Perhaps they believe that they are good and can save themselves by their works and their efforts, that God will accept whatever good they think they have done. In a similar fashion, the crew initially thinks they can save themselves without condemning Jonah to death. In verse 13, we see that they try rowing against the storm to see if they can make it to land, but they can't. The storm is worsening. Just as those who try to save themselves by their works cannot overcome their debt of sin, but also continue to add to it. 
The only way to life is through the death of another. And in verse 14, we see that the sailors arrive at this point. But note the work that has already been done in them to prepare them for this. At the start of our story, they were seafaring pagans. In verse 14, they cry out to the Lord. Now note in your Bibles, the all caps Lord. That means they call out to Yahweh by his particular covenantal name. And what do they pray? We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now when Jesus was crucified, he did not hold it against even those who did the very act. He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ suffered not as a mere victim of human injustice, but willingly laying down his life as a good shepherd for his sheep. As Isaiah wrote, it pleased the Father to crush him. So too, Jonah knows full well that God has purposed for him to be thrown into the sea. The sailors are instruments in the Father's hands to carry out his will. And so into the sea, Jonah must go, in verse 15. And then after this, the storm stops. The guilt that had brought this calamity had been removed. We get a fascinating postscript on these sailors in verse 16. Then the men, these very recently pagan sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Who fears the Lord and makes sacrifices and takes vows? God's people do that. These sailors, having faced this horrific ordeal, but also having seen God's power in it, now believe in the Lord. They worship the Lord. Just as the centurion witnessing Jesus' death said, surely this man was the Son of God, these men can now clearly see that Jonah's God is the true God, and they worship and follow and serve him. In the midst of Jonah's rebellion, where Jonah thinks he is flying from the presence of the Lord, God has used it even for his own purposes and his own glory and for the salvation of his people. He has made these sailors into saints. Though Jonah meant evil, God has turned it for good, for his glory. God will save all of those that he has chosen whether through willing prophets or unwilling. But as for Jonah, God is not finished with him either. We will turn to that part of the story next time. For now, we have seen Jonah's disobedience, Jonah's discovery, and what at least appears to be Jonah's doom. Though in fact, it will turn out to be Jonah's deliverance. The deliverance of the ship and its crew, the deliverance of Jonah through certain death in the sea. But in Jonah's story, we see Christ through the types and shadows. As Jonah's sin brought sin and death to this ship and its crew, Adam brought sin and death to all of mankind. As Jonah was thrown down to death to turn God's wrath away, 
Jesus Christ, the God-man, suffered and died to turn God's wrath away from those whom God had chosen to redeem. Now we will see even more of this correlation as Jonah's story unfolds. But for now, if you are here tonight and you have not believed in this gospel, it is once again offered to you. Christ died to save sinners. His salvation and his eternal life is offered to any who would repent and believe. To those of you who are in Christ here tonight, be comforted and be assured by the words of this gospel. But also recognize the lessons Jonah teaches us. We cannot run from God. We cannot hide from our sin. God is everywhere, and he is almighty and all-knowing and all-powerful. Even if our sins do not find us out in this life, God sees and knows all. If you are hiding in your sin, if you are harboring rebellion against God, the call to you is to repent and to submit to God's will. Now, there is also a call here to the church. The world, like the sailors on that ship, is lost and dying in its sins. The storms of sin and death and the spirit of this age and all of its lies seek to destroy any and all that they can. But church, it is we and we alone who have Christ's words of life. Will we be faithful to proclaim him and confess him, even to those we might not like in the places we don't care to go? May we all be ready and willing to speak the truth of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word which we have heard. We thank you that through it we see Christ in the types and shadows, and we see the great salvation that has come in Christ, how he The second Adam has delivered us all from the sin of the first Adam and from all the many sins we have committed. I pray also in light of this glorious gospel truth that we would be diligent to repent and turn from our sins, that we would always be submissive to your calling and will, and that we would take this gospel to a lost and dying world. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.